Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Jacob Hashimoto is an artist born in Greeley, Colorado and based in Ridgewood, Queens. He studied at the Art Institute of Chicago and has been showing his work both in the United States and internationally for the last 20 years. Mary Boone Gallery in New York, Studio La Chita in Verona, Patricia Farr in Santa Monica, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, Martha Otero in Los Angeles, the Weatherspoon Art Museum in North Carolina, and Saatchi Gallery in London are just a few of the many places he's exhibited his work. His work has been reviewed in Art Forum, The New York Times, The LA Times, Art Review, Surface, The Guardian, Art in America, and just about every other art publication there is. His work is in the public collection of LACMA, the University of Houston, the Oak Park Public Library, and Whitman College, just to name a few. As his show, The First Known Map of the Moon, just finished its run at Mary Boone Gallery, I stopped by his studio and we talked about coffee, music, New York City, and a bunch of other stuff. Here's our conversation. Anything like the coffee you're drinking? Oh yeah, I'm a little embarrassed because I'm still drinking these Nespresso pods, which are ooh, I know, but they're so convenient, you know. And the, and my father might buy them for him, and he scrapes them out, and you know. He, oh, he does and, that, and he well, and then he composts the centers, and he oh my <laughs> recycles goodness. everything. That's more work than the convenience of what the thing is supposed to provide. I know, but you know, in New York, you just dump them in these UPS bags that they send you. And then they just and recycle the UPS guy just picks it up. Didn't the guy who invented it was a Green Mountain or something who invented the little like the that the little thing, thing apologized? Oh, for like the, destroying the yeah. environment. <laughs> it's like he's <laughs> like I kind of feel bad about the fact that I invented that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I mean a lot of people. There's been a lot of backlash against it. In some ways, I feel like the the Nespresso ones in my brain aren't as bad because they're aluminum yeah. and not like plastic which i think is a little more problematic but yeah i'm just totally lazy and socially irresponsible <laughs> like at the end of the day it's kind of there's some shame every day when i pop my two pods of espresso in. i got a little uh, espresso maker in the studio mm. and it does the job pretty quickly and you're grinding beans and doing the whole yeah thing. i just I you've always grinder. been kind of a coffee head though. like pretty like from the day i met you you were like oh this, you know this yeah this <laughs> look addiction. at this piece of equipment that i have <laughs> like, <laughs> the addiction runs deep well lewis gisbert's the same way he's yeah. always talking about like his machine and coffee fanatic. i should probably pull it together and, and it's my one vice i have nothing else that's pretty good man. i don't i don't you do know, you anything made it all else. the way through art school yeah, yeah, well, I, a couple times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's my one thing. Although I've noticed, I I remember when I first got out of school, mm-hmm. I think I was up to maybe seven or eight cups a day. That's quite a bit. It's You're a drinking lot. like 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 drip coffee. Yeah, or? just drip. Just like that a, stuff will mess you up. It like will. When I yeah. go and get a, because I drink espresso, and I feel like it's like being a beer drinker. I feel yeah. like I can gauge what's going to happen, but as soon as like I start drinking like drip coffee from like joe or whatever yeah 
I'm almost, I'm like shaky and (laughs) I can't manage it. I'm like, oh, I just totally overdid it. And if you make a pot, it's there. You -hmm. don't want to make just like two cups. Whereas the espresso, it's like I'm making that one cup and I have it. Right. And I'll just froth a little milk and just make a little like cortado or something. It's easy to gauge if I have a big pot laying around. Yeah. So how much do you drink now? Two or three cups a day at the most. That's pretty reasonable. But there's been studies. But you know, you're getting a little long in the tooth, too. Your body can't metabolize it I know. as well. <laughs> I think that's my... my <laughs> <laughs> I think it's my body's natural way of telling me like to chill out. Because there was once yeah. a point where I could handle eight cups a day. If I drank eight cups a day oh, yeah. now, I don't even think I would be that... Um, excited, I think my body would just shut down or do something crazy. You probably just have to take a nap. Yeah, like, like the opposite would happen. But these days, I can drink a cup of coffee and fall asleep while drinking it. Oh, I can do that too. It's really weird. Yeah, like it doesn't. Like Dawn, if she drinks a cup of coffee, like after seven p.m., she'll be up all, all night. Yeah, some people it just it's nuts, and I'm like. Bring it on. Bring it on. Yeah. I'll, I'll totally go down after a cup of coffee. And but, I'll sleep really well. <laughs> oh, really? See, that's the thing. I'll wake up more than usual. Hmm. But are you a heavy sleeper in general? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like a sleep superhero. Like, I can sleep like 15 hours and nothing, you know, airports. Jeez, and, you you know, even like, overachieve in your sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if that's an overachievement. It's like, it's like, it's sad. I feel like it's a handicap. Yeah, but you're doing it well. You're resting. That's true. I'm, I don't well. get rest. Like, if I hear a tiny little noise, I wake like, up. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But in cases of natural emergencies or evacuation needs, That's I will be true. the first one out the door. Armageddon. Whereas you might be <laughs> sleeping yeah, through the flood. Goner, man. <laughs> Bed floats like, away. What happened to Hashimoto? <laughs> I just didn't wake up in time. <laughs> he was a heavy sleeper. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely conk out. And then, like, you know, but I sleep with earplugs, too, sometimes. So, really? Yeah. That's, I'm, you know, I don't know. That's like preparation. That's like putting a uniform on to sleep. It's like an off switch. Yeah. You know, I'll be like, all right, I'm putting your plugs on. Do you ever do the... No, I don't like the pressure on my face. Yeah. Something laying on your face the whole night? Yeah, it doesn't work. You know, you get them on the airplane. I actually get them and I send them to my mother. She uses them? Yeah. I can't sleep on a plane either. Really? I can't. Oh, dude. I know, it drives me crazy. That's super rough. That's like that's like a curse. Yeah, because because you travel a lot. <laughs> yeah, and when you go somewhere far away, you can't uh, catch up on the sleep. Yeah, and now making that matter worse is the you know four million movies you can watch on a plane. Oh, I know that's really a problem. Like like all the selection. Yeah, it used to be really nice when it, you just had like Jack Frost and you knew you didn't want to watch right. it. Right, you, you could, could just, just go, go to sleep. sleep. <laughs> yeah, now oh, you have that the internet. Sucks. Yeah, it's a totally different experience. Yeah, and then Delta, you can just, they have free movies all the time. Yeah. So you just stay up. You never get, like, on the red eye, you're like, oh, I gotta get some sleep. I can't do it. I pay the price when I land wherever I land every time. Yeah, you just gotta fly worse airlines. That's true. You know, third world country airlines. <laughs> Is that the all trick? exclusively. <laughs> That's the trick. <laughs> you're nearly retired, you know, airplanes. So are you a, uh, a coffee first thing in the morning when you get to the studio sort of thing? Yeah, I have like two shots when I get up, and then I have two but more. But you ride to the studio, right? Actually, I'll, these days I live just about three blocks away, so I just walk down the street. Oh. I look at the Empire State Building, and you know, it's it's super convenient. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, but for years I rode, and mm-hmm. um, but now it's yeah. I just get two. If I have time, I'll have yeah you know, two cups of coffee in the morning, and then I'll get here and I'll have it. I'll have a half 
like just to jumpstart the engine. No, I have like a shot of decaf and I shot like a regular shot. Decaf. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Wait, do you mix it together? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's just, you know kind of. I don't know. It, it seems to work. Yeah, I uh, think it's mental because as soon as I grind coffee beans, I start to feel better. woken up. Yeah. yeah, it's like Pavlov's bell. Mm. Yeah, you're well trained. Although these days I've been trying to exercise really early in the morning and forgo the coffee until I need that second burst. Mm. And that does well for me. Aren't you supposed to like burn more fat though if you if you get like you all do. jacked on caffeine yeah. before you go? You'd yeah. be like a Tour de France rider. Yeah, but I'm trying to pace myself. <laughs> you don't <laughs> want to get too out. ripped too fast. Oh no, I'm, I'm not the caf- <laughs> too caffeine oh, ripped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to get too jacked. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that would just be a problem. Yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah, <laughs> nobody wants that to happen. So what's your uh, daily studio routine like? Well, I roll in. My staff gets here at 7.30 in the morning, which I can't manage, so I roll in around 9.30. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, then most days I meet with Aaron, uh, my studio manager, just to kind of go over this list of stuff that we, you know, ongoing projects and whatnot. And then I go and talk to the guys who are working on different components of everything. And then hopefully get to work on my part around 11. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll work straight through because I'm, I'm just like drinking smoothies during the, during the day these days. So I have like like five-minute lunch and work straight through. And usually I work till, you know, anywhere between 7.30 and 10. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and my staff leaves around 5.30. So I get this kind of nice chunk by myself yeah. um, at the end. Um, and that's pretty much it. And these days, because of our Basel and like just everything else, we're, I guess I have a show opening in Finland, uh, a group show in mid-November. So we're just finishing the pieces for that and starting the work for our Basel. And then I'm doing an install in LA next week. So I've been working like seven days a week, just making sure that everything gets done. Yeah. Um, so how's the pace changed, let's say, Ten years in the last ago. ten years, <laughs> like it's enormously different. Your schedule, you know what I mean, yeah. and and to now, it's like it's a never ending. Does that affect your? I don't know. I feel like we all need that well, time I think, dude, down. Like ten years. How old's Nauki now? He's nine. Yeah. So like we yeah. met about ten, eleven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. If not longer. more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, when I got to New York in like two thousand four. So yeah. So. Um, I mean, you think about how exponentially more complicated your life has become. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's probably about the same for me. Right. Except I don't have a, you know, a kid. A kid. Yeah. And um, so I can't, you know, I'm not going to complain yeah. to any parent. Right, that. right. But yeah, it's, and we're, I am busy. But yeah. you're constantly, it's like, it used to be you just work for the show. Right. It now you work for the show and the events and all the other the art fairs. And yeah, I mean, like, 10 years ago, I used to do a show, and then I would be done. Yeah. I would just, like, watch Curb Your Enthusiasm for, like, two weeks, and then, like, maybe get up and start figuring out what I was going to do with, you know, what what am I interested in? I, you know, spend time researching stuff and, like, yeah. you know, doing, uh, you know, working up to the next project, and now it's like we've got a project that's completing, but we're also midway through another project, and... You know, I say we a lot now because I work because my staff is, you know, eight people, mm-hmm. um, and so we've got, you know, projects or you know, public commissions that go on for like five years, you know, or yeah. you know, we've got a GSA commission that started in 
2010 or something and it's still gonna, going. it's gonna go on for ever it yeah. seems like because because of the nature of the federal government so i mean some of those projects go on constantly and we're constantly doing maintenance on them and then uh, other things you know and the show schedule still continues mm-hmm. um, we do you know one or two solo shows a year um this next year we're doing i think just once no we're doing two solo shows one with Leila heller in dubai and one with um Ron hoffman in, in chicago mm-hmm. but we're also doing two museum shows so the, the next year is just like stacked already um, yeah so nothing new in that. No, but then we got this building that we're, we're trying to turn into the studio. Yeah. <laughs> so that just adds another component of kind of like design work meetings with the architect, kind of figuring out what's possible, what we can afford, you know. Yeah. You know, I had a teacher once told me, make sure, and this was when I was first started showing in the city, he said, like, make sure that you decompress and you have that downtime. Mm. Because he's like, it's almost like a generative period. You know what I mean? How do you mm-hmm. decompress when you're constantly moving to the next I don't think I do. <laughs> I've decompressed for like 10 years. Um, Is it helped at all by the fact that you do work with a team? Well, you, well, could, you, couldn't, helped, you couldn't without it. Right? No, we, I would make like one thing a year without yeah. it. I mean, there's so much labor involved in, in every kind of component of what happens in the studio that like if I was tasked with doing a show by myself, it'd probably take like three years. Yeah. I mean, it'd be really, really a long haul. Um, and frankly speaking, it might not be as good because the guys that are working with me are really, really good. Yeah. Um, and so I've got this great team that works with me and that takes some of the load off. Um, we're trying to figure out around the studio how I can have a little bit more time to kind of um, process and, yeah. and design new kinds of projects. And so I think that the studio is really kind of gearing up towards having me have more time to kind of decompress because it's really super important to, you know, what we do here. Yeah. Um, and I know that it's just, you know, it's also, it just seems like everything, and I don't know how you feel about this, um, but I feel like everything's just gotten exponentially more competitive, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and that everybody's hustling and, you know, now we're kind of approaching mid career and, you know, and the playing field's totally shifted. And I feel like there's just a lot of stress that I thought would go away that hasn't gone away. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing everything that I was doing in my 20s, but also managing kind of bigger projects and more shows and with the same kind of level of fear and desperation (laughs) that I always had, which I thought, you know, oh, you know, when I get to mid-career, if I survive that long things will level out, they'll get easier. And, and uh, yeah, it doesn't happen that it way. It just doesn't happen. It, well, it's, you know, and I've heard a lot of interviews with like actors, mm-hmm. people like athletes. I think it's the same thing. It's like when you think you've earned a normalization in your career or your right. path, it's just an you endless. You put in your 10,000 hours. Yeah. It's just you <laughs> keep going and going and going. And yeah, yeah I don't know. And it's, it just seems like our informational environment makes things all the more stressful and, and there's mm-hmm. just so much more like that kind of work that you're doing and, and yeah, tending to. Do you, do you to. do all that stuff? I do. Yeah. How's, how's, how? well, what do you mean? Do you mean, <laughs> like, uh, oh, like, uh, answer like, emails or do you think like social no, media, like social media stuff oh, yeah. and, like, and like Instagram and all that good stuff? I do it, but not, I'm not too heavily embedded in mm-hmm. it. So in other words, like I'll, I use Instagram to just share work 
Mm-hmm. It's not like I have a personal one that I don't share with anyone except for my very close family. Mm-hmm. So it's real, and I don't really use that too too much. I mm-hmm. just send them pictures, you know. Right, right. But as far as my work's concerned, I just yeah, I just use it as another avenue to like show things what that I'm working doing. on or a process or whatever. But I'm not too too embedded in it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I I think, and I'm not on there looking all the time. I know some people get addicted to. Mm. Looking, and I think I did it first, but then I just don't have the time anymore. Or the mental space. Yeah. Maybe. But once in a while, I'll see something on there, a show that I want to see. or Like the other day, someone posted an image of the Picasso and Calder show that's opening, I think at Emily Rake. Or oh, Rake, really? Or, and I was like, wow, that's... So you know all this stuff. An amazing <laughs> image. Yeah, but I won't go. I never get to go <laughs> anything. I just know about it. Well, that's, that's, your, that's like the, uh, the beauty of being a New Yorker, right? You can just not go yeah i guess so you're you could go you could you probably won't go and you're usually too busy you should go that's the great (laughs) yeah exactly like you're not going to that that's the irony of the city is like you're working so hard and you're always hustling so much that you don't get to take advantage Mm -hmm. of all the the joys of living in the city you know i went to central park the other day with my son and it's the first time i've been there in a long time it's like this is amazing it's yeah, beautiful. Central Park's incredible, right? It's beautiful. And I was like, I just never have time to come up here. It's almost like north of 34th Street is a whole other universe that I never get to. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And, I, it, you know, it's, I just, you get so busy with day-to-day that you don't get to take advantage. And then you, I have these friends who move outside the city, whether it's upstate or mm. Pennsylvania or Jersey, and they're so reinvigorated. Like, you know, they have this like kind of like, ability to exhale in their day-to-day for not being in that hustle all the time and then they come visit the city and they can do all these fun things it's almost and, like that they do them yeah you know like when they're living around the corner from the guggenheim they probably never went right because it's there and then it's, yeah i'm hoping that when we when we move the studio to austin that i'll have i'll have this kind of mental space to be like oh i want to go see some shows in Chelsea. Yeah. Like I actually used pictures from shows in Chelsea from like September and my like this lecture I just gave mm-hmm. shows that I should have seen, but I didn't. I just <laughs> like the images off the internet. You know, so I'm talking about this Jessica Stockholder show, and I didn't actually go to the show, right. which is just terrible, really rotten because I think she's amazing. Yeah, and I just didn't have the time time to kind of negotiate it between my schedule. But I looked at all the images and I was like, oh, I'll use these because. These are really innovative and interesting. Um, Did you fess up to the fact that you didn't see? You didn't say that, right? You didn't say, "Hey, I didn't see." I think the show show was still up when I gave the talk, so I was kind of like intending to get back and like do my due diligence. Sometimes that time flies by. Yeah, and I was just like, "Oh, everything just closed." (laughs) Yeah. Do you worry at all, or not worry? I mean, do you think about it all, the differences between being outside the city and not? I think that's a big question for a lot oh, yeah. of younger I think, artists. Well, I think worry is really, yeah, it is worry. You know, it's, it, it's, it's almost like when have I earned the right to leave, Yeah. you know, and I won't be punished too badly for it. Um, it was a lot of our decision was based on like how, um, like proximity to the city, but not in the city, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't. I do have some lingering fears about it, um, and you know, I like to have people come to the studio. I like to be able to have access to my friends who are artists that live here, and and like I can talk to, and like if I have a problem, I can look at something. Like you know, we were just in the other room looking at that piece, and I was yeah. like, oh, what do you think would happen if we did this to it? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and those kinds of conversations are really 
hard to have, you know, when you leave this environment. And it's part of the reason we all pay the price that we pay to be here, you know, but we also all get tired after a while. Right. You know, and we're just, yeah, you know, maybe I'd like to have a lawn or, you know, yeah. maybe I would like not to have to, you know, struggle on the subway with my whole foods bags. Right. And take uh, a deep breath once in a while. Yeah. I do that when I go to Pennsylvania. I just oh, breathe. Sure. Because well, the air is so different. So, yeah. But then the opposite might happen to where, you know, like I always think, well, you're right down the street, technically. I could go see you. Oh, yeah, that's true. And then true. time yeah. passes, and you don't think about it that much. Whereas if you move outside the city, I'll and make it a event. point. Yeah. Now I'm going to take Metro North or, you know, go sure, yeah. drive and visit. And then you get a good long visit, and right. it's, and well, or you if appreciate like, it. Or if you're like, oh, I want to go to Storm King with Naoki, and on your way back, you'd be like, oh, I can stop and say hi to exactly. Jake and have lunch or something. Yeah, which I might not have done if you were right down the street. You told none of us would have. We've been like, yeah, he's probably busy. I'll talk to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're basically just laying out the case for this move. Uh, yeah, I think the case has been made. For, yeah. I, I mean, frankly, it just came down to the fact that it's really hard to find a decent studio building yeah. out it out it. Unless you go up to Jamaica or something. So, right. I know, know the final frontiers are finalized pretty much. I mean, yeah, I mean, Broadway Junction. I was actually talking to uh, Stephen Maharam, who's, uh, yeah, they run, he's yeah. one of the primaries of Maharam the Fabric. No, mm-hmm. you know, you yeah. know Stephen. Right. Um, so I was at this party with Nick Savage or something. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about it and he was asking, and he was asking where I lived. And I was like, oh, I live, you know, in Ridgewood. He was like, oh, that's such a great neighborhood, you know, and they're investing in property in the neighborhood. So you get this idea that if people that are, you know, involved in development at that level are out here already. It's gone. It's done. Yeah. You know, it's just cooked. Time to move. You know, and they bought like a whole bunch of properties and they're developing them and they're doing a really amazing, I mean, we saw pictures of them and they're spectacular. I'm sure. They're spectacular, but it's like, wow, that's not like the kind of like ramshackle sort of world that I can function in. Yeah. <laughs> and once people see images or like see buildings like that in that condition, then everyone else, the second tier people can come in and be like, oh, I want to have something that looks like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it's over because now everything gets bought up and and then artists have to leave. Well, and then studio space is another thing, you know, so yeah. it's just like there's just no more studios and the people that are renting studios out here even, you know, the prices go up and up and up and the spaces get bigger and bigger and they have this expectation that like like I, I, there's something with landlords out here that, that the idea is that like there is like an endless supply of super rich artists right you know, like, 2002 yeah, like, like art world monetary like situation yeah, it's just baffling I'm like you know there aren't that many people that do very well yeah you know, and a lot like, are coming out of school with like over a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah, and like they can't drop, you know, twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars a month on a studio, and they don't even have a job yet. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's, no. And so yeah, that's exactly right. And so the, the small studio spaces. And then I was talking to another friend of mine out here who rents spaces because mm-hmm. he's got one of these like rats maze things. Yeah, and he's like, you know, it's really it's getting harder and harder for us to rent to young artists because they're not even looking. Yeah. in this neighborhood you know and we're getting fashion people and design people so you know this whole next tier of kind of like uh commercially oriented like artworks 
art artists or you know, artisans are, are moving into those spaces. Yeah. You know, because they can have some proximity to see. I think it's because they can't actually get places in Chinatown or, right. or in the garment district. And there's more energy over here nowadays, creative yeah. energy anyways. It's like the building I'm in is all now, it's all architects, fashion people, mm-hmm. record labels, like stuff yeah, like that. That's exactly what, what James said. And was there's saying. only a couple, a few artists left in it. It's weird. It's just... It's super... That neighborhood's changed a lot. It has. Yeah. And it's, it was never like that. You know, the record... Like, if there was a record label, it would be over, like, Bedford and North 12th or something. Oh, you yeah. That's, Nowadays, that's not happening, so they're just moving, you know, out to Bushwick. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it seems you're the like... Last of, you're the last of a generation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was joking with someone about, you know, when you move to New York, it's this thing where you get a spot, and then... You get pushed, mm. and then you find another spot that's good, a little ways out, and then you just keep pushing to the next frontier. But at a certain point, you just drop anchor or leave. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> kind of like, you know, for me, the Graham stop was where I was like, all right, that's is where you're gonna got a place. Anchor. I'm yeah. dropping anchor there. I can't go out to like Brownsville or you know. I was East impressed. You guys did that. You were early though. You were like. You, you came in at the right time on that. This is the genius of my wife. Yeah, well, yeah. there's no denying that. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it was smart of me to make that choice. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're lucky. <laughs> so, so how much longer do you have? Well, we're going to be here. I mean, our rent's pretty low. So my landlord's going to let me out of my lease if I, whenever I want to leave. Yeah. But we have the lease until um, April of 2018. So there's time. There's time, and the thinking is is that the um, that hopefully we'll move the studio about this time next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of my staff might not come, so we're going to try to figure out, you know, how I can work with them if they want to keep working on on projects. Yeah. You know, because lots of them have been with me for over ten years, so it's kind of like it's a real major move for the studio, and it's going to cause kind of a big upheaval in the process which i think might actually be a good thing in the long run because you kind of you know it's like uh it's like losing all of your tools you know and you have to i'm going to be tasked with kind of you know reinventing the system based on uh new variables Uh, and i think that that could be really really interesting and you know so that's how to answer your question. I, I hope that by this time next year we'll start the move definitely by you know January, February of the following year of 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll be 100% up there. Moving is just awful. I mean, it's one of these <laughs> really, really difficult things, but there's something so great about it too because you kind of like... You move through things. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? You can sort Purge through too. all this old shit that you don't need anymore. Just get rid of it. Well, you know, when I moved from L.A., I uh, I dropped all of my, like, years. For, like, I think six or seven years I lived in L.A. And when I moved there, I dropped all my stuff, all the artwork that I collected, all the, like, paper drawers, you know, everything in Walla Walla, Washington, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. It's still there. <laughs> And then I loaded up my little car, that little Scion that yeah. I drive, and I drove from Los Angeles here. With just With just that what failed. fit inside. And last time we moved, it took an 18-wheeler. 
And this time it's going to be, like, who knows? And look at the stuff. Are you a, There's so much stuff. You're a I compiler? Mean, just, <laughs> a I'm, maximalist? You know, I'm not like a hoarder, though. It's like I'm totally willing to throw things away. Mm-hmm. It just kind of it just accumulates. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and like the bicycles. I have like 13 bicycles in the studio. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a little absurd. But, yeah. you know, it started because Lewis Gispert had that BMX bike and Stereo Mongrel, that movie yeah, that he yeah. made. And I saw this kid on this BMX bike, and I was like, I was like, dude, that's a mongoose super goose. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked Lewis, and I was in L.A. at the time, I was like, Lewis, what's going on with that bike? He's like, I don't know. Somebody's got it in their garage in Echo Park. And so I went up and retrieved this bicycle for, from this woman and, uh, and restored it and got all the de- you know, vintage decals and yeah. bought new wheels for it and like really just put this thing back together. Right. And then I was like, oh, I should get some more BMX bikes. <laughs> You got addicted to it? Yeah, it was really a problem for a while. I was buying tons of BMX bikes. Yeah. I said it's like a whole box full of like BMX bike frames that I was supposed to go to the Chromers, you know. At some point I was like like putting them in these like baths to take off like rust in mm-hmm. front of the studio. This is when the studio was yeah, still yeah. on Stag Street. I have all these like basins out on the sidewalk. <laughs> People are like, what's going on? It's like, like a bike chop shop. Or yeah, something. and I'm just like, this is really not, I'm not getting a lot done. Because I had like my assistants like doing stuff, you know, like yeah. taking rubbing compound to them and making them all shiny. I was like, this is really not what this operation was meant for. What's so your main body of work? I know, Lewis kept saying, you know, he's like, dude, you got to do something with those bikes. And I'm like, I don't, I just haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Although this piece that I did last year, or two years ago now, in 2015, uh, Never Comes Tomorrow. Uh, I gave you a bunch of stickers from that thing. Remember we were yeah. making all those stickers? Yeah. So w- I also had this whole collection of BMX, vintage BMX bike stickers from when I was doing all the, the mm-hmm. BMX bike restaurants. You just order them online or something? Yeah, and there's like, then there are dudes that make replicas. You know, yeah. There's all, in Australia, where like eight, BMX was really popular in the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these dudes that are making like, GHP one replica sticker sets, you know, so you yeah. can buy them on eBay. Um, so I just had a ton of this stuff that I just, you know, as I was searching around for like Kuahara laser light frames from mm-hmm. 1983, I was like, also <laughs> like, I was also collecting like sticker packs because I knew I was going to have to do a lot of restoration. So yeah. I had all these stickers, and so those kind of got folded into this sculpture, you know, where I was, I just basically sticker bombed this entire thing. Yeah. All these like motocross and BMX stickers and like all the road bike stickers that I have from, as a middle-aged like road bike person. And that was like reconnecting to your youth, right? It was kind of like this idea that you build this sculpture that would, it was kind of like I had a solid wood. It's like if you gave a solid wood to like a 12-year-old kid mm-hmm. and they didn't know what it was. And they had a whole bunch of crap just laying around their room, and they just covered it with yeah. whatever shit they yeah. had. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And so that was kind of the, I think it was kind of like portrait of like youth and disrespect, and mm-hmm. kind of, but also making something beautiful in a different way. Yeah. Because I don't think it was like when I wrote on stuff or tagged things or you know covered them with stickers, it wasn't about making things ugly or kind of like violating them it was more like how do i make this thing cooler yeah you know it's like Adorning i can them. just add this other thing to it it's going to be that much cooler yeah and so i think the idea with the sculpture was like you know approach it with that sort of naive sensibility about you know embellishment or something yeah but that is uh kind of betrays this kind of 
established aesthetic at mm-hmm. the same time, which I think is what all of us kind of Oh, it comes up do. in the podcast yeah. all the time, people, yeah. especially guys, growing <laughs> up, like skate culture, you know, yeah, and yeah. that there's a combination of feeling slightly outside the norm, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a little punk, and it's also, it's a very visual scene, there's a mm-hmm. lot of posters, yeah, stickers, like... Yeah. We still, we're still stealing like graphics from yeah. like, skateboard decks. All I think it's just part of our generation that greened into our visual history, you mm-hmm. know, of growing up around that stuff. And like I talk a lot about when I was younger, Mark Gonzalez was like a huge artistic influence. Like oh, I yeah. love those skateboards and those paintings. And the idea that he was a painter and he's also a skateboarder sure, yeah. was really I remember Mark intriguing. Gonzalez. You know, and I had those skateboards and they meant a lot back then. Like the graphics on those things were everything. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, but the Hasoi board was really important. To oh me. yeah, because I was like, oh, you know, I was like, like half Japanese dude. Yeah, you know, seeing that kind of part of like California or like West Coast sort of popular culture was really like, yeah, you know, affirming. Well, he was a well, he was a vert guy. Did you yeah. did you skate vert? I didn't skate vert. I didn't skate at all. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was funny because I raced BMX bikes pretty seriously when I was in yeah. grade school and junior high. And, uh, you know, this was before free, you know, freestyle bikes kind of came out at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, you started seeing people riding vert on, on bikes. And that mm-hmm. was coming out of, like, all the skateboard stuff. But um, my friends and I never got into it. We were, like, the old kind of graduate guys who were, like, kids today. Yeah, with <laughs> their know, skateboards. With their crazy tricks. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so we were, like, faster, lighter, you know, drilling out our pedals. And, like, everything was, like... We're all just about competition on that. So were the, those light, like Kuahara, they were kind of like the that style bike? Yeah, it was like that. I mean, I had a, you know, I had a, a, a Schwinn, I forget, it was a Stingray of some kind, but it was a like a factory team bike. Yeah. It was like super, super crazy light, you know, and you have like these rims that have like 80 pound weight limits and Mm -hmm. you're like 110 pounds at the time and you're just like i'm just gonna ride them till they break yeah yeah (laughs) um yes i mean there was that's what those bikes were really and like the bikes i have in the studio or that kind of bikes and my my father actually had a ghp uh cruiser which was a small company out of california that he bought from a guy who raced for the factory team Mm -hmm. uh who was a friend of mine and he He's an English professor. He used to ride that thing all over campus, like until like five years ago. And dude's like, my dad is like, you know, in his mid seventies, mm-hmm. you know, just cruising around campus on his BMX bike. It's really <laughs> funny. I got out of it. As, I think I started in BMX. That mm. was like the jump in point. But it was freestyle stuff mm. when I got into it, and then that it quickly sense. got replaced by skateboards. I think part of it is too, the skateboarding was just it seemed more, I don't know, punk or and you needed visual. less gear. And that's the big part of it too. It's yeah, less those expensive. Bikes were expensive. Yeah, because I had a red line that would cost yeah. a fortune. And then what was the other one? They were you probably remember this. They were kind of pastel colored and they were GTs. Yeah, it was a Haro. Haro. Haro yeah, it was Haro was bought by GT. They used yeah. to make a, they originally made like racing clothing. Yeah. Yeah. But those were so cool. Yeah, bikes. they had amazing gym, like all those little platforms and things. Yeah. The the yeah. palette was incredible. I know they were just so pristine and like pastel looking. I don't know. Those mm-hmm. things were amazing. I never had one of those. I had a red line bike and within a month I think it got stolen and they found <laughs> oh. it. They found it down by the the creek. We called it the creek. Oh yeah. Down by the creek and like parts. Someone like Oh, that's super Yeah, sad, it was man. really it was a bummer. Yeah, those are nice bikes, those old red red lines. Yeah. 
I don't have any of those. I'm trying to think. I didn't have mine long. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> and then I kind of like, you know, grew up with not a lot of money. So I realized quickly, like, I'm not getting a replacement for that. That was it. Yeah, that was. I didn't lock it. Been, that was it. Yeah, that would have been the case in my in my household too. Yeah. I remember, you know, and I remember like trading for bike parts, you know, you trade, mm-hmm. like every, you know, so-and-so has an extra set of wheels. So you have to figure out what kind of barter system you can yeah. use because I had no money either. Yeah. And we were all just trying to make it happen. I think that's probably why when I started rebuilding the bikes, I was like, oh, I could have all these BMX bikes that I want. I wanted when I was a kid. You yeah. Know? So it's, it's kind of fun. I think aesthetically it was a nice, it's a nice, was a nice break from the studio at the time just mm-hmm. to kind of worry about, something that was kind of finite you know because in the studio it's like it's just like endless possibilities and it gets you into trouble yeah i think sometimes too just i mean having something else to do out you know some mm-hmm. other thing so it doesn't get too repetitive what do you is do, essential what do you do i mean outside of i mean because you're super busy Mu- across well, the board music. outside of raising your family and music music is a yeah. big thing i mean i don't spend as that, much time with it now as i used to but i'm still doing it mm-hmm. occasionally but it's still also a component of the way that you think about painting and yeah and like i use it for animations and stuff yeah. but it's my work is so i think with using digital media and then also doing painting and working on paper it's like when I'm getting tired of one thing, I just jump to the other thing. Mm-hmm. And it usually just works out, you know, to where I balance it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, sometimes it's travel, too. Like, getting out of the studio and going somewhere. Seeing stuff. Seeing something. Do you feel like you're a good traveler? No. <laughs> <laughs> In what ways do you think you're a bad traveler? No. Because I'm always curious, because artists are kind of homebodies. Yeah. For the most part. You know, it's like, I've seen the way you organize your markers. Yeah. You know, like, this is not, yeah. <laughs> like, chaos is not... That, I mean, you see, my studio is a disaster, but I still like. I don't function well on the road, so I'm always curious. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I, I like it, and I I do well as far as like taking in mm-hmm. my environment. I think I'm just not a well-oiled machine with travel, mm-hmm. but my, it's because my wife is so good at it. She's done it so long. That right. She's just like and she's like an a pro, and she grew something. up flying all over the place. You know. She grew up traveling, mm-hmm. so she's good at it. When? How old were you when you first left the country? I was twenty. Well, not counting Canada. Is Canada? Canada doesn't doesn't count. Let's not count Canada, but like it does overseas. count for all the Canadians. Yes, you right. are not American or uh, you the U.S. When was the first time I went? It, I mean, it was post grad school. Right. You know? It wasn't when I was young. Yeah. I and but I driven across the country, you know, four, three or four times. At, by the time I got to college, mm-hmm. just playing music, oh, yeah, yeah. which is a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. And you I were just, young. Yeah. I, well, I camped across the country and just when I was how just many, out of high how many, school. How many people were you traveling with? Three others in a Chevy, just a terrible car. <laughs> like one of those old Chevy Cavaliers or it was something. like all your gear. Yeah, we didn't have much. We had yeah. like had one big tent and we didn't have any money. We had one of the kids' dad gave us a, a gas card like mm. a credit card oh, for wow. just to use a gas station so we didn't have to pay for gas that seems so kind of like 1980s yeah the gas card yeah i know right <laughs> like what's a gas card yeah, people don't know what do, that is do people do that anymore no I, well you get gift cards for like right. bp or something it just feels like you know national lampoons vacation yeah it, yeah that was what those trips were like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would just drive and drive and drive and then we would hit like a koa or some sort of campsite mm-hmm. But they were closed by the time we would go, so we would just go set up, 
And then we would get out. We, you'd wake up. I'm sure you know this. You wake up at like 530 in the morning roasting in mm-hmm, a tent because mm-hmm. it was in the summer. Sure. Yeah. It gets so hot. You have like four sweaty dudes in there, you know, <laughs> high school kids. Man. It was gross. And then we'd wake up, crack of dawn and get out of there before anyone came. So we never had to pay for camping. And we did it all over. How'd you guys do your booking? Oh, well, this, the first couple of times I went was for fun. We were reading Kerouac, and we just wanted to drive just across the country. It. We wanted to go to uh, City Lights Bookstore. Oh, wow. And Crazy. go to The Hate. And we did. Yeah. And we got there. You and can we still just do it today. Walked, yeah, we just <laughs> walked around, and it's like, oh, this is what it's like. Wow, and, that's interesting. But we did the loop where we would go up north, you know, through the Badlands, mm-hmm. down the coast, and then down south, and back up. Good stop at Waldrug for five-cent coffee. Waldrug. Yeah, and uh, what was the... There was like a, a... For a quarter, you could get an ice cream cone at one of those... I don't think it was Super America, but it was one of those gigantic mm. truck stops. I remember Super America used to have thermal coffee cups that were like 30... Or like 48 ounces. Mm-hmm. Like you could just, just like get the gigantic... Jacked like on that. Biggest coffee cup you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, we it was a wild scene. But yeah, the first couple of times it was just for fun. Oh, okay. So it was unregulated. Then when we went on tour, we booked it ourselves. So it wasn't the most fluid of schedules. Mm-hmm. Like we would have a show in Kansas City and then not the next night, but the night after a show in Seattle. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> so Jeez. we had to drive oh straight through. And then, you know, then we'd have shows all the way down the coast to California yeah. and then it would be spaced out through Texas to New Orleans and then back up. And, but it, it was fun. It must have been really interesting. It was great. Yeah. I mean, you the second tour we did, we had a supporting act, and um, it, was, it was even funner. I mean, we kind of had our own team going through. Mm. And, it, and, we and had how just, long were you out? God, it must have been it was like two weeks, maybe, two or three weeks, yeah. I'm guessing. Since. It was quick, yeah. considering quick the amount of travel. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Because you did both coasts in that time? Or you did? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Although we weren't, we were spotty because we yeah. booked it ourselves. So it wasn't like we were hitting every single town, mm-hmm. like a gigantic 40 right, city, right. you know, dates or whatever. But, but yeah, you get to see the country and it's a vast country and there's a lot in between mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah, I used to drive back and forth quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's great visually. It, I think it's amazing. I just did it by myself a couple times and it's just like... It's one of my favorite things to do. I think yeah. it's really peaceful. It is. One of the most amazing visual experiences of my life was the first time that I camped. And it was Utah, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, they don't call it big sky country for nothing. It was just so incredible, the sky. And the I shooting, think it was Montana, right? The shooting big stars sky. and all that. Well, compared to New York, <laughs> yeah. anywhere is big sky country out right, there. Right. But you just see, it's incredible, the sky. And yeah. Like, so that was an eye opener, and then the redwoods camping in the redwoods mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. pretty cool, and fearing bears because they're are there bears in the redwoods? I guess they must we, be like black brown bears or whatever. I think so. I just remember the the guy who's driving during the trip was really worried about. He's afraid of bears. Oh, really? <laughs> he's like had an irrational <laughs> fear of bears. So you didn't go to like uh, what is it? Uh, Yellowstone? No. Yes. What's what's the one up there that has all the bears? Is it Yellowstone? I don't know. Or is that just where Yellowstone, but there's... Uh, anyway, it will come to me. It's been so long. I, we would go to these, um, you know, national camps, or maybe it was state-run or nationals, but they were places you could camp for free. You mm-hmm. would go in, and there's a little booth with a guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember my friend being like, are there 
is it true that there's bears around here? And he just laughed for like a minute. He's like, yeah, we have bears. <laughs> He's like, there was just one here yesterday or whatever. That's so he, he told us to make sure that we urinate around the campsite to, <laughs> to keep them from coming. Right. Which, of course, the friends I was driving with, we, we had like, we had gotten a case of beer somewhere. Right, right. It was an excuse to like drink a lot of beer and then pee all over the place. Gotta do it, man. Gotta protect the campsite. Gotta knock this back. Did he talk to you about like hanging your food in a tree or anything? No, no. He just said, just 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 like you know, take a leak all around the campsite. You'll be fine. Yeah, he wasn't that helpful. That's funny. But the trees there, another incredible sight. Yeah. So I didn't get out of the country until much later. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't leave. I didn't. I've still never been to Canada, (laughs) even if Canada can. Canada's. Beautiful. That's what I mean. I mean, I grew up in Washington State. You're right there. Yeah, it's it's just again, it's it's, kind of embarrassing. It's the whole. It's right there. I don't really need to go. You know, my family didn't. We didn't ever go any place. You know, it's. I we went to the coast and we like you know to the Oregon coast like once a summer, Mm -hmm. and then maybe went to Arcata to visit my dad's friends who taught at Humboldt. And that was about it. Oh, we went fly fishing in Montana. You never went to Seattle? I know it's not that close. We didn't really go to Seattle very much. We went to Portland quite a bit because yeah. it was my mother's from around there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I never. Yeah, you know, I remember I moved to LA after art school, and then I met uh, this woman. This woman from Italy who turned out to be my Helen DeFranchi, so yeah. my our Italian dealer. Right, right. Um, and uh, she said to me, she's like. Yeah, so I think, you know, maybe we'll bring you over. You'll do a show in Verona and then a show in Rome and, a, and the project in Bologna at the art fair. And I was like, I think I was like 26 or something. And I kind of freaked out. I was like, because <laughs> I didn't even have a passport. Yeah. You know, it's like it didn't even occur to me, the idea. Like it, it was so far from any reality that I had. Even though my sister was living in Japan at the time, you mm-hmm. know, it's like for me, it just didn't seem like I would ever leave. Yeah, you know, the continental United States. Well, that first trip there. out is real. It was like, real tough. Big. It was like three months over. Like, you know, Whoa, that's yeah. yeah, that's not a touristy. It was. I lost like twelve pounds or something. <laughs> anxiety weight loss. It was anxiety, and it was also I didn't know what to eat. Yeah, you know, and, and it's funny because like you go to Italy and everybody's like, oh, it's a land of food, you eat whatever. But you know, it's like everything from like buying a buying a coffee. Mm-hmm was challenging yeah you know it was like because you didn't know what the protocol was mm-hmm. or you go to the you know, the grocery store and they're all still in like the, you know the late 90s it was still all mom and pop stores basically there's like one big grocery store but it was like really hard to get to and yeah. so you have to go in and talk to people and like have all these interactions and you don't really sound comfortable yeah it's like terrified yeah so i looked them? great when i came back <laughs> did you just go to like mini marts or something I went to the I went to the same little market like every day, and I bought like you know potatoes and eggs. And just try to say just, the least amount of things I, you need yeah, to say. Yeah, just basically any anything that was behind glass that mm-hmm. you had to ask for Off was, limits. was not going to happen. So that totally happened when I first started going to Japan. Mm-hmm. I would only go to like the mini marts to get stuff because you could basically go in and buy things and not have to say a word. Right. You yeah. know, because I was like nervous. Yeah, I think that any. You know, but I still find myself doing that today in countries I don't know as well. Yeah, I'm not the kind of person who wants to try to speak if I don't speak the language. Yeah. I took French for seven years, and when I went to Paris, I just didn't say a word because I felt like I'm rusty, I'm going to embarrass myself, and Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that American who's, you know, 
trying to speak poor it's French. It would have been nice, though, because I think, yeah, the, being the American who tries to speak poor French is probably goes over a little bit better than the American who's like... Oh, yeah, it's just like, yeah, yeah. learn my language. Yeah, like... Anyone here speak English? English? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should speak English. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny, because then I, after that, I just traveled, like, I've been traveling constantly for, like, yeah. the next 20 years. But So are you now a good traveler? No, I'm a, I'm a rotten traveler, but I'm not... I'm not terrified anymore, which is an improvement. Any place? <laughs> yeah. Is there any places you haven't been in where you really want to go? Um, Besides Mozambique. <laughs> Mozambique. I think you know. I'd like to go to Patagonia. Mm-hmm. I think that would be nice. Um, Have you been to Iceland? I haven't. I haven't been to Iceland. Don goes to Iceland. It's like, it seems like. All the time. I've heard People good things. People love Iceland. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's beautiful. The pictures from uh, it are amazing. No, I haven't, I haven't been to Iceland. I'd also like to go to, like, Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, but most, I'm trying to think. New, Ze- New Zealand's, I'd like to go fishing in New Zealand. would be nice. Another place that looks incredible. Yeah, and apparently the fly fishing is just, like, unbelievable. So. I'm sure, I mean. As a kid, gr- having grown up in the West, it's like. Yeah. You know? It's like the place to go. I don't know. It's like one of these places that you hear it is like a mythological place, even before the Lord of the Rings movies. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that landscape. But is you right. know, if I if if left to my own devices, I would probably just stay at home. Yeah. You know, it, as opposed to going and doing something adventurous and like going to Uruguay or something, I'd just be like, yeah, I think I'll just hunker down and like when, know, when you're around the house. I was gonna say, when you're not in the studio, are you a TV guy? I am. I'm a, well, even when I'm in the studio, sometimes I'm a TV. Are you binge like watching? Are you joining yeah. that fad? I've been doing that for a long time. Oh, yeah. You started that? <laughs> yeah. I've started been, with the binge watching? Yeah. I remember watching, you know, remember when it was like wall-to-wall, like Law & Order episodes mm-hmm. on A&E. I would watch like six hours of A&E every day. The like, marathon. Yeah. And just like tie knots. Yeah. Because yeah, so much of my work is, is just labor. Um but yeah, I've been binge watching everything. If I can watch it in the studio while I'm doing something else, like a lot of like stupid TV, mm-hmm. like non cinematic TV, it's um, I can I can turn it on in the studio and I don't have to watch it because it's like it's um, it's script driven, so yeah. you, you can just listen to what people are saying and right. communicate so much. It's so heavy handed, I guess. That's maybe yeah. the other way of saying it. You just kind of take it in. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I watch tons of stuff. I think it's. I mean, what are you watching? I, do you do that? It's irritating, but I'm not a big TV guy. It's not irritating. <laughs> a lot of people hate when you say like, it's not that I don't watch TV. I'm just I don't really watch a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I watch stuff online because you have a rich inner life. The yeah, rest right. of us I, are I, just I, hollowed out shells to yeah, fill, right, our, right. fill our lives with other people's emotions. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I watch a lot of clips of stuff, but I do watch a lot of soccer oh, all the time. That's kind of like what we do on the weekends. We have soccer on running oh, that's nonstop. Cool. You should come. Oh, dude. So, uh, Give it well. Who knows what's going to happen? But we're supposed to do this project at the Hermitage in twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. and World Cup is in in Russia. Oh, it is. Yeah, like at the time Although, that we're doing the show. Is it going to be good in Russia? I don't know. <laughs> we're but a little worried to, about it. You should come to St. Petersburg, man. Yeah, it'll That'd be, be fun. fun. I'd like to catch a game. Yeah, you all. If you're there, you yeah. kind of have to. And I used to like going to see, um, you know, Helen's son, the. the 
the Italian dealer, I'll say it for the people right, who are right. listening to this. Um, Francesco, he took me to, he used to take me to Hellas Verona again. Oh, nice. Um, and it was nuts, yeah. man. Like, oh, that environment's crazy. It's really intense. Yeah. And I remember one year they were playing Vicenza, which is like the city next door. And the, uh, and you have to enter from separate ends of the stadium. Mm-hmm. And there's a bulletproof, like a wall of bulletproof glass between each side of the stadium. Crazy. And like the Veronese were sitting at one end and the Vicenzini were sitting at the other <laughs> end. And they were shouting like chants back and forth uh-huh. at each other. And they were, and this was like televised and, you know, and they were like, you know, I think the Veronese were like, Vicenza, Vicenza, fa, fanculo. <laughs> you know, they were like, <laughs> like loudly. Like really loud. Yeah. Like the entire stadium was just shouting it back and forth. And, you know, they were shouting things about like how the, the Vicenzini, you know, are cat eaters apparently. Because <laughs> apparently during World War II, they ate all the cats in the city. Uh-huh. This is the city of Palladio. Right. Has so no, they have no cats apparently. Yeah. Because they, they ate everything. Um, so they're still making fun of them about that? Still, yeah, today. <laughs> Not letting it go? <laughs> no, anything you can get your hooks on. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, going in Europe is, is, is kind of... I want to see a game in Dortmund. Oh. Those wow. fans are nuts. I mean, just the you know, flags Marcus, alone. Marcus Lindenbrick is from Dortmund. He's a huge Dortmund fan. Yeah. yeah. Well, right, rightfully so. Yeah. And we've they've got a Kagawa plays for them, who we like. And then Pusilic, they, the young American kid who's like 18 and he's really good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They've got a good team. And, but this, the fans, it's like, you know, the, people go crazy at all those games. But theirs particularly visually, it's just the mob of it with these gigantic flags oh, waving. Yeah. It's just bedlam. It looks like it would be, actually, it might be awful to be there, but it would be, it would be an experience. <laughs> it would be kind of scary. It's just getting crushed the whole time. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a, a big football fan, so it's, I don't know anything about this. But I think it would be pretty scary to be. I mean, like, when you go to watch football in Verona, it's pretty chill relative yeah. to, like, what you see. Like, you know, Dortmund's, like, a kind of a working-class town, too. In blue-collar. Yeah. yeah. Blue-collar Germans. pretty intense, man. Yeah. <laughs> With a lot of alcohol in the system. Yeah. They've got really... What, is, what kind of beer do they have up there? It's not alt beer, is it? No, that's from... Um, I don't that's know. That's from Dusseldorf. It's they weird. have their like different. You do like it's like fifteen minutes away or something. Yeah, it's like an entirely different beer culture. It's funny. My mom had all those steins growing up. Those beer steins. Oh, that's from like Bavaria, right? I don't know. She's German. They were German. Is she from like Munich or that area? I think the family was from Kaiserslautern or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Interesting. It was a German thing. Uh, maybe it was filtered through Pennsylvania German. You know that kind of. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the beer thing is big. In the types. The types, regional beers. And they drink it there before games, I think. <laughs> Do you, can you drink in the stadium? Because you can't drink in the stadium in Italy. Like, that's like... Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I've never been... I think been... things turn really black and dark. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can't. That's like just putting lighter fluid on the grill. Yeah, it's just like, it's really dangerous. Uh, fun fact, when I did this last summer, I was in Japan for a month. Hmm. We went to a Frontale, like a Tokyo FC Frontale game, which are the two teams in Tokyo. Okay. You can get sushi and bring it. They sell it right outside and bring it into the How's, into the stadium. It's so nice. It's like really good. It's like going to watch the Miami Heat. I think you can do that there. Too. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure it's the same grade. <laughs> I'm sure, it's just as good. <laughs> yeah, they have it at Yankee Stadium now too. Oh, like really? Sushi. Yeah. Are they? I hear that attendance is down at Yankee Stadium. Have you been hearing this? 
Like yeah, because well, the new stadium they lost the charm of the old stadium, and it's mm-hmm. just as impersonal in, in its kind of architecture. It's like city. Is it like city field? City field's great. Is it? That's a really good one because hmm. the seats are amazing. It's like an old time. They made it old timey style. And oh. then they also have like Shake Shack and all these good food things. And okay. I, I still you, never eaten at Shake Shack ever. I've gotten. They have a mushroom burger. I'm vegetarian. Yeah. They have a mushroom burger. It's really good. Hmm. But um, but people love it. And the city field is like anywhere you sit in there, it feels really close. Mm. Yankee Stadium just feels like you're in like an arena. Did you go to stadiums or see sports when you were younger? I didn't. I mean, you we were outside. Of, well, didn't you say a minor league team was? There was here? a minor league team that played like like five blocks from my house, and I never went to a game. <laughs> Walla Walla. In Walla Walla. Wasn't Walla Walla a big Warner Brothers like destination? Yeah, bit. so it, well, I mean, if you, it was a little big vacuum cleaner company from Walla Walla, Washington. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, so he was like the traveling salesman. He's like, "Where are you from?" He's like, "I'm from the little big vacuum cleaner company from Walla Walla, Washington." <laughs> there was some other. There was Looney Tunes. Yeah, mm-hmm. some other Looney Tunes reference. And a lot of times things got shipped to Abu Dhabi. For some reason, that was oh, a really right. funny destination. Kalamazoo, <laughs> Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Wagga Wagga. I had actually a. A uh, whitewater rafting guide from Wagga Wagga, Australia. Is that it's real? From Wagga Wagga. Wagga Wagga. I think Wagga Wagga is real. Walla Walla. That's funny that they picked out that. Yeah, was that weird to... when you were like see that cartoon and it was like from Walla Walla, Washington, and it was supposed to be so. funny? <laughs> I mean, I guess we always knew it was funny. You this know, is as funny to be as a Walla Walla. Yeah. Uh, but I'd moved from Pocatello, so you know. Where's Pocatello? Idaho. Oh, wait! I thought you were all. Wait, you grew up. I was born in Greeley, Colorado. That's right. And then my dad went to, he got his PhD at the University of Michigan, so we lived in Ann Arbor while he was in grad school. Mm-hmm. And his first job was at Idaho State University. What did he do? He's a writing professor. Okay. So he did a, a PhD in comp. Yeah. Um, and so he went and taught at, and ran the writing center at uh, Idaho State, and then we moved, and then he got the job at Whitman College, and when I was like in third or fourth grade, mm-hmm. and we moved there. So was I, it hard to move, or um, were you okay with it? I think it was great for me. Yeah, yeah. But Idaho was rough. It was like it was racially rough. It was. Um, I was raised Catholic, and there was like a whole Catholic Mormon thing. It's like you know, it's like the yeah. clowns in the mines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, so there was that, all that kind of uh, tension in in town about that, and um, you know, so moving to Walla Walla, which is a smaller community, but you know, pretty liberal in a lot of yeah. ways, um, was definitely definitely good, and like I think my not teaching at a state school, not teaching at a state school that was like a, the the underfunded, ugly, younger, you know, younger sibling of the uh, University of Idaho. Yeah. Um, I think was good for him too, professionally, so. Where did he grow up? He grew up in Denver. Yeah, he, he um, so my grandfather came from Japan, and mm-hmm. my grandmother also came from Japan, but she was in an agricultural family, and they had a farm in California. And I'm not actually sure how they met, but during World War II, you know, you had the option of... Internment camp. Or, or moving two states inland. Right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they ended up... That's why there was a big Japanese population. In, the hell? Why did they make it move two states inland? I have 
they figured they couldn't call in the artillery from Denver Jeez. or something. I don't know. That's so messed up. Uh, so, what a weird way to displace a race. Yeah, well, super screwed. It really screwed up Los Angeles. Yeah. So my all of my relatives in LA, um, most of them went to Manzanar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they, you know it was a huge part of their life. You know my aunts and uncles and yeah internment camps can be a big impact on oh, people's yeah, lives so yeah i mean they went they'd go back for the reunions every year my uncle joe used to write like songs on his ukulele for mm-hmm. their reunions and, yeah you know it was a big los angeles would be a totally different city yeah today you know they had like you know whole like japanese baseball leagues there you know mm-hmm. going back to our baseball thing but it's yeah. really just like the culture that existed there is just gone. Yeah. You know, and you get bits and pieces of it, but really never recovered. Um, well, wasn't a huge aspect of that too that people, like Nisei, would have to like hide, or not hide, but they would want their kids, which I guess is your generation, mm-hmm. to not speak Japanese, not oh, yeah, yeah. culturally necessarily. No, that's actually a really good observation. Embrace yeah. it because you want to assimilate without having to get locked up in an internment camp. Right. You know? Well, and, it's, and there's a lot of shame attached to it. Yeah. So, yeah, my dad's whole generation, the Nisei, uh, of his generation specifically, don't speak Japanese. Yeah. His sister doesn't speak. You know, his aunts and, you know my aunts and uncles don't speak. Because I think it was really, it was so toxic to be Japanese for so long. Yeah. Like, so much kind of shame attached to it. Um, and so it's interesting, like, as I was growing up and then starting to leave the country and meet, you know, Europeans and, and Asians that are working in the art world, you know, everybody's like, oh, do you speak Japanese? I'm like, no. And they're like, doesn't your dad teach you Japanese? And yeah. I'm like, well, he didn't speak Japanese. I'm like, well, who in your family spoke <laughs> Japanese? And I was like, well, my, my grandfather and grandmother spoke Japanese. Yeah. You know, and they're Buddhists and, you know. But it's, um, I think, after the kind of heavy trauma of World War II, it just really destroyed the, the culture, like, linguistically, but also in terms of, like, you know, what was passed down. Yeah. You know, uh, there was this real emphasis on like, you, know, you play little league baseball, you just, you know, you assim- assimilation was really key. And in my generation, like my sister, who has a PhD in Japanese language and literature, she went back, you know, right. she hung out with uh, my grandma's friends. And mm-hmm. she, you know, went to Japan and she studied in, you know, in Kyoto and she lived there and worked there um, and made a huge effort to kind of, take back some of that history. And yeah. I think that, you know, when, when it, as part, you know, I work with a lot of Asian materials and I worked for a long time for a Japanese artist. And I think that that was kind of part of also reclaiming some of that yeah. sort of uh, cultural information, material and craft. And um, it's, I think when I was, you know, in my late teens and 20s going to art school, that stuff you were just kind of like what belongs to me you know you're at that time you're kind of looking around for like what's my stuff artistic you know? identity yeah. yeah who am i what right. can i talk about what do i have license to deal with and i think that you know i i felt like that was a moment where i kind of did from a more material standpoint kind of looked at a lot of the stuff that my sister was doing yeah you know and i mean she was studying poetry so. right she was pretty embedded in that early. Like when she went to undergraduate school, is that when she started studying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she went right into it. Yeah, she was like, and she went when she was like 15 to college. So she was, yeah, she was just in the thick of it yeah. from the beginning. You know what else is interesting? It seems to, as opposed to the East Coast, with West Coast 
just Asian, the, the mm-hmm. Asian culture in I'm general. I'm very curious as to what you're going to say next about this. <laughs> is that since there was a little pullback or there mm-hmm. was an effect on like the cultural squeeze of wartime, mm-hmm. that there seems to be more of a cross-pollination of Asian culture there as far as food oh, and culture itself, you know what I mean? Whereas in the East Coast, it's almost like in Asia where they just separate or there's more of a separation of culture. Oh, right? yeah. Do you know I mean, what I mean? Interesting. Because I, I don't know, man. My uh, I had a Korean girlfriend in art school, mm-hmm. and my I've never seen racism like in my family. Oh, inter-Asian like, racism yeah, is crazy. crazy. Have you watched that Ali Wong like uh, Baby Cobra? Hilarious, dude. Her whole piece but totally on like, funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. On like on race and like capping on other races. I know. Is hysterical. And a lot of people don't even know about oh, it. Oh yeah, like. But, you know, the Chinese don't like the Japanese, don't right. like the Koreans, the Koreans hate the Japanese. Everybody hates the Japanese. Let's just put yeah, that right. out there. <laughs> they did a lot of bad stuff, right. you know, and, and nobody's forgiven them. And, and, you know, you know, Don, my girlfriend, is mm-hmm. Chinese. Yeah. And so when I, we first met years ago, she was like, oh, you know, my dad hates the Japanese. You right. know, so this whole thing just keeps going. I think... And they're from Seattle. <laughs> so, right. It didn't um, even really affect them at all. Yeah. Right? Like, well, yeah. You know. um, yeah, I don't know. I think that they're, they're just more kind of long-term Asian populations, too, on the West Coast. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's, I think they're many generations in, which probably helps blend the, the cultures and the cuisines. And right. Kind of, you know, that identity. Yeah. Um, plus, they've been kind of made to be a block. You know, if you look at Los Angeles, you know, you've got the Latinos, right. African Americans, you know, the Asian Americans. I mean, you you can see them in different. You know, you go down to Orange County, you got a little Saigon. It's you know, yeah, they're still ghettoized in some ways, but I think that as a block, as they're dealt with, mm-hmm. you know, they're dealt with kind of collectively. Yeah, but I remember going to L.A. and being like, "This is awesome," because like you would go down Sawtell, mm-hmm. and there was you know. Like so many different, like a Korean restaurant and Japanese. There's so many different, mm-hmm. s- like styles of cuisine and like different. Like you would see like a little garden, like a Japanese garden center sort of thing. And then right. you know there was so much like interplay between where it wasn't so sectioned off. Like in New York, you have your one little Japan street but, or something, and then Koreatown. But before World War Two, it was much more sectioned off. Was there it? was a huge Japanese population, and so there was there were whole neighborhoods where there was no signage in English at all. Yeah. Know? So and that whole community was destroyed it was like the largest i think it was the largest asian population in yeah the la the war blew it up yeah and so once you know so after that it's like everybody just came you you trickled back in kind of wherever they could and i think that that's part of where you get that a bigger mix yeah um but i don't know i mean i think you'd have to talk to a historian more about that i think that don's got this idea of like West Coast Asians as being better adjusted <laughs> because they're just more of us, you know? Like, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a Western half Japanese dude, so I don't really count in that mix. But, right. um, but in terms of like, you know, Asian people from California, you know, I think she, she has this idea that they're, you know, better adjusted. Just more Americanized, you mean? Or well-adjusted more people? More comfortable as like, you know, less kind of, because it's just a bigger population of people, yeah. like less isolated feeling, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like... Yeah, but you West Coast people are weird, though. <laughs> <laughs> You're all, like, kind of well, laid back. I don't know, there's this different vibe. I don't think anybody's vibe. laid back. There's this vibe that, you know, they used to come when I arrived at uh, Carlton in 
in Minnesota my freshman year, this dude, Sherrod Puri, at the end of my hall called me. He used to call me Captain Mello. Uh -huh. I was like, what's up, Captain Mello? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And I was super, I'm super high strung. No, you seem so New York, like yeah, New I'm York like, sensibility. But, you know, I've been here for, well, yeah. yeah it, it rubs off on it, us. It, it takes a while, but yeah. it breaks you down. And you, it's true. But I used to speak really slowly. And I, now when I go home to see my parents, I, I run into these people. And now I'm noticing the accent. Yeah. You know, I've been away long right. enough. I'm like, oh, you, you guys can hear speak it. kind of funny. Yeah. And you're so slow. Like, let's like... <laughs> Let's, speed it up let's a little. Speed it up. Yeah. Let's, let's make something happen here. And, and uh, but I guarantee you, they're not at, the, at their core. They're all totally neurotic. Too. Yeah, just it's like, just a different surface. I'm feeling a little stressed out today. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, let's take it up. Make me feel it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really want to feel that anxiety. Yeah, but I feel like now I go back and feel like I'm super kind of. I'm very well adjusted to the East Coast. And even when I moved from L.A., I think that all my friends out here were like, oh, yeah, you should come out here. You're going to fit. This is going to work for you. Yeah. Um, I imagine, like, the coastal thing is, like, if you're there for a short term, you kind of fight it for a little while. Or it's not mm. intuitive. It feels forced. Right. And then if you're there long enough, you just start to assimilate it. Yeah, I think... I think I think that's probably true. And, it, you know, it's like... It's, it's as simple as driving, though. You know, you get in the car and traffic in you know in queens or you know, you know you try to get on the you, you just drive up the taconic yeah you know and the level of aggression that you're taking mm -hmm. is just like so high and you're just fighting for survival you know yeah <laughs> and then you drop yourself in rural washington and you're suddenly like going after like this little old guy who can oh, barely yeah. see he's got cataracts in both <laughs> eyes you know and you're just like honking your horn at yeah him, you're like, like come on old man <laughs> And people are like, what the hell is this really? guy? This guy needs to take it down a notch. It's like <laughs> calling it a road rage case. Yeah, like seriously, it. they're calling the police. It's hard to shake that. a very angry guy out here. Yeah. I go out. I went to Pittsburgh fairly recently, and I don't go often. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, I felt like I got to tone down this New York driving thing that I'm mm -hmm. doing here. Because people are not used to that, you know. It's, it's more, I haven't been to Pittsburgh for a long time, but it's, yeah. I think it's, it strikes me as much more mellow. It's more mellow, and it's real hilly. So mm -hmm. everywhere you drive, you have to drive carefully because right, cause it's super. Windy. It's not like a fast open space. You're kind of right. But I don't have time for that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I got places. Yeah, to I got I got stuff to do, people, and I'm like fighting that urge to just lay on the horn. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take it back. Well, you're gonna have to adjust. Well, I guess when up in Westchester, up north of the city, things are. There's a lot yeah, of city all, people you up know, there. All the jerks live up there. Yeah. Anyway, so it's like, They're all New Yorkers. Yeah, they all drive BMW station wagons and they terrorize you. God, BMWs. There's no single more great population of... In, of, of psychopaths? Of psycho drivers <laughs> yeah. than BMW drivers. I don't know what it is either. I mean... It's something about that Bavarian My friend motor. Jamie has a BMW station wagon and he drives like an animal. Yeah. Like, something happens in those cars. What's going on? I don't know. It's not like a Maserati. I mean, they're good cars, but it's not like you get in it and you can't not go yeah, fast. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It does function pretty well at a slow speed. Unlike, you know, yeah. Like a Bugatti. Right. A Bugatti doesn't perform under 65 yeah, miles an hour. <laughs> My friend's mom had an old Jaguar growing up and he always used to tell me, you got to drive it like over 65 for certain, or over Jeez. 70 for a certain amount of time or it'll just break down. And I was like, that's really weird. But I would just regurgitate that all the time. Yeah, he's got a Jaguar. It's amazing. You have to drive fast. <laughs> it's, it's an imperative. 
Unfortunately, I think I the Jaguar a, will break down anyway. Right. Yeah. I have a Honda that forces me to drive slow, which is yeah, my a nice car touch. Has like a go kart. <laughs> I yeah, mean, but they just they keep going. You, yeah, you 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 first. I remember when you were shopping for that car. Yeah, Hondas are good. Yeah, you, well, yours is a cool looking little car too. Does the job, and they're safe. That was the big thing for mm, me, because yeah. you know when driving in the city. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted something. Yeah, my my cousin works for Toyota, so I got my Scion wagon, like the first model year that it was first introduced in California, and I was like that's the car I want because yeah. it's like you can carry so much stuff in it and it's like super cheap it's got a lot of and space so he, he buys a new car every year and just sells it mm-hmm. like it costs like he buys it he, he sells it for a profit actually in the oh, second really? year because he gets them so cheap from the company so nice. I got this car from him I'm going to drive it into the ground as you should how many yeah. miles are on it not that many <laughs> I just hit the 100k mark oh see my car is from 2004 I'm at 45,000 miles what? I guess, well... I drive really. my bike everywhere. I mean, I commute, so, you know, I'm driving that's a lot. Do- yeah, that's what's doing it. Plus, you you, you have a, a son, you know, so yeah, you're, we, you're actually driving during the week, even in the city. Yeah, like, we drive like, around. That car just sits there, and, you know, we take it out just so the battery doesn't die. Sometimes. Right, yeah, just know, to so warm like, it oh, up. You just drive around the block about five times. Yeah, well, it's going to get some, some winter weather tests up I, there. Yeah, I think I'm going to get a truck. I'm going to take this opportunity to buy myself a pickup truck. Because I think also... Like the delivery culture that we yeah. just rely on here doesn't exist in the same way. So that's true. Got to move you know, things around. Yeah, go into the lumber yard. Need a ridge line. Got to got to plow the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it it's gonna be it's my excuse to get a like a a good old boy vehicle. Yeah. I'd like to find something that wasn't so kind of ecologically disastrous though or irresponsible. It's hard because you, when like, you need the power, you got to have an engine that that yeah. runs. Maybe just give up the disposable coffee habit thing and you'll feel good about it. Right, I'll lower my carbon footprint. <laughs> Take <laughs> the train everywhere. It'll balance it out. I think if I just stop traveling, like yeah. flying anyplace. Because like, the flights are what really up your personal carbon footprint. Well, you know what I don't understand? Maybe you can answer this. You know, oh how, they have these, <laughs> you know how they have these things called gyms mm. where you go to them and you run on a treadmill? Right, got that. Why yeah. can't they just... At every gym, hook up a generator, so all the energy that's I think it's battery technology, like Elon Musk. Like the problem with couldn't you harness all that energy? Well, that's that's the problem with solar, though. You know, it's like you know you feed it back into the grid, but there's there's no like all the electricity that's in the grid is just moving around. Oh, right? you can't so harness there's no, it. There's no storing it. Oh. I, well, this is what Elon, Elon Musk's like, mm-hmm. issue is, is he's like, batteries need to get better. Yeah. Because, you know, like a house, that want, if you're off the grid and you want to run on solar, there's plenty of energy during the day, you know, to, to run your whole house 24 hours a day on solar, but there's no way to store that energy yeah so that electricity whatever you're not currently using flows back into it go, the grid goes and if you don't have the grid it goes grid away it disappears god it's like those old calculators the solar panel right. ones that don't work yeah. you're like can't those you just hold like a half size. an hour thing yeah. of this yeah you'd have to have it like in the light yeah no i think it's exactly the same the same system so um yeah we can study the genome but we can't get a better battery yeah and the, the other problem with the battery i think is I am maybe totally blowing smoke here, but my my sensibility of it is that 
that manufacturing the battery mm -hmm. could be just as problem oh, you know, environmentally yeah. problematic. That makes sense. You know, so it's like creating all these batteries everywhere. Yeah, it's like we should just not. We should just live our lives during daylight hours and yeah, freeze to death in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I like think the, it's the only way. The turbine things don't, don't work that great, right? Because they just end up killing birds and like not. Yeah, and it's also the same problem, right? Yeah, it's my mom's takes up all space. up in arms about this because they're building turbine like wind farms out where she oh, where really? they live in Washington. Are they noisy? No, but they're disrupting the landscape. So oh she's yeah, like, we're sitting in the you know in the backyard. She's like, look at those things. She's like, and she's super angry about it. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of a, a school of like, you know. Do you want to have a reactor up there? Because that's right. really the other option. So, it's, you know, and I just don't think there's a good solution if you're not going to take a hit for it. You yeah. know, and like your grandkids aren't going to even think twice about that. Yeah. Well, power lines, I'm sure, when they first started putting them up, people oh, were like, yeah. what the? You know, what is that? Those are super invasive. We don't see them. Yeah. They're yeah. everywhere and no one looks at them anymore. You know, people paint them and use them in their artwork. Yeah. <laughs> there's always that kid who's like painting telephone poles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But the thing is, is like you build those turbines and if eventually you want to take them down one day, you can. You build a reactor. That yeah, waste goes nowhere. There's yeah, nowhere to put that waste. You can't transport it. I mean, I, Walla Walla south of Hanford, you know, where they built all the fissile, mm -hmm. where they created all the fissile material for yeah. the weapons, uh, the nuclear weapons. And, um, you know, all that material, all, all that waste is still there even though they've shut down most of the reactors and they can't move it you can't you know, do and, it was, and it's dude it's such a problem over there it's like something that everybody's just like ignoring from generation to generation but nobody's done anything about it and the storage facilities that all of that stuff is stored in are, are decaying and, and they're because they were built for just temporary storage facilities mm -hmm. with this idea that we would have a national depository for this stuff but yeah. nobody wants to transport allow you to transport it so even in Yucca Mountain where they've spent so many, so much money kind of developing that site. Even if they could get the people in Nevada to kind of do final approval on it, crossing state lines with that much kind of radioactive material, nobody wants to put it on a train or on a truck. I mean, yeah. imagine if a truck overturned with that stuff. Yeah. Disaster. Literally. Yeah, literally. A disaster. Yeah, my sister has this idea that everybody in Walla Walla is getting cancer because it's in, because all the radiations in, in the groundwater. Yeah, which may be true. But. Well, people were worried about that in Japan because of you know Fukushima. Fukushima yeah. But I mean, it's our planet; it's getting around one way or another. Yeah, that's. We're, if it's like you're making it, it, how far is Fukushima from Tokyo? It's pretty close, isn't it? Yeah, it's not too far north. It's I don't think I don't know the exact amount, but yeah. I think it's probably close enough to where people could probably. Be yes. worried about it. Yeah. We've but been talking about Indian Point now that we're yeah, moving up the Hudson. close too. Yeah. Well, well, where are you going to go? You know what I mean? Iceland. Maybe. Yeah, geothermal. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps on giving. <laughs> right. We can move right next to the Global Seed Bank. Oh, yeah. That's right. In uh, Lapland. Isn't it in Lapland or northern Denmark or something? Or not well, Denmark. Lapland is in Finland. Finland. Northern yeah. Finland or Norway or something. It's up there. It's all, yeah. It kind of crosses that whole section, right? Yeah. Sweden, mm -hmm. Norway. Yeah, I've never been up to the Lapland. It's supposed to be kind of amazing yeah. and weird. I love the idea of the global seed bank. Yeah. I That's like kind that of cool. It's like when it all goes away, we can start from scratch by yeah, saving this stuff. This is very, what's, what's that Dr. Seuss? Harry Hears a Who? Uh, Horton Hears a Horton Who? Horton Hears a Who. Yeah. It's a good book. Yeah, with the guy. 
see. Yeah. It's super sad. I know. It's really sad. Well, I think that's what we're looking at. I don't know. <laughs> the tuffle the trees are going. Yeah. yeah, you know that pretty well. I do. I think you, you have more recent experience with it than I, I do. I do. You know, when I was in college, I worked at the uh, children's book library, too. Oh, really? So I got the new kids' books. I've written a couple of them, but I've never published them. You should do it. I tried. People, People aren't doing They liked them, but they didn't want to publish them. <laughs> it's not a meritocracy, man. It isn't. It's not. I thought it would be if a piece of cake. If you were Martha Stewart, it'd just, you'd just be cranking it. Yeah. Or what did Madonna really want to? Derek Jeter. Oh, Derek Jeter did, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, you know. That seems like a little bit problematic. Yeah. So, you know, he is beloved. So. He is. It's the name. It's all not He can't do wrong. Yeah. My name's not Sell Books name yet. Oh, yeah. You could, you know, you've got time. I'm working on it. Yeah. I feel like we didn't talk about your art at all. That's okay. <laughs> you know, we could talk about art. It's going well? You know, it goes. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah. I actually enjoy not talking about it. Yeah. Because I feel like. Like ninety percent, not ninety percent, seventy five percent of my life is spent like worrying about these things that we worry about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, talk about baseball or or the environment or like how the landscape is changing. I, I think is much more interesting. For yeah. Me. I had this professor in art school. I remember Suzanne Duramas, and she used to come to my studio and she'd be like, "You've never noticed that I come in here, and we never talk about your work." <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, we just talk about religion or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's okay, though. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, I think because it's all part of the process. I, and it reminds me of this moment where I asked my dad to write a, an essay for one of my early catalogs, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and he was like, yeah, I don't know anything about, you know, I'd love to help you out, but I don't know anything about what you do. And and I said to him, I was like, you know, that's that's totally fair. And I said, don't try to write about art. That's like the last thing. I said, write about what you know. Write about the garden. Write about working, you know, the house. And, mm-hmm. You know, write about whatever. And so he wrote this kind of nice piece about, um, you know, gardening and like dealing with the weeds in the yard and like, you know, the kind of all that Sisyphean stuff that we deal with. Yeah. And uh, and it's like this nice long piece about working in the yard. And at the end, he goes, there's a paragraph where he's like, you know, my son will be home in a, in a few weeks for the holidays. And he won't, and there's this long list of things that I won't do that he's already just, you know, <laughs> described. He's like, he won't help me move rocks. He won't, you know, you know, water the plants. He won't do any of these things. But he'll understand. <laughs> you know? Which was kind of a nice, I thought it was really a sweet moment because he built this kind of parallel construction between what we do in the studio, which is kind of this like, maintenance it's like we're growing things and some things die some things survive you know uh we we splice things together we make Mm -hmm. experiments but it's all kind of part of this uh this practice which is you know like you know gardening in a certain sense it's like a ritual in a way yeah it's like a ritual it's as maintenance it's it's kind of part of the way we live it's part of of like our daily practice of life and interacting how we interact with the world and so I think that, like, by talking about other subjects, sometimes, you know, it's really a useful way to try and get, like, kind of somebody's worldview on what they do. So, right. like, even if, I think, you know, if all of my interviews were, like, or all of my discussions were, like, what we're having now mm-hmm. about, you know, with journalists about my work, the 
complication of the read of the work would be so much more interesting. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's like they would have all this other stuff to bring to it. Yeah. And like, and the kind of simple narratives that people build about like the silly things that artists say about their own work, you know, wouldn't exist. And yeah. we could just kind of move on to the stuff that actually really ma- matters to people, which is like, you know, guilt about what kind of coffee pots they use. And, yeah. And, well, know, that's why I, I do this. Because I feel like artists have a lot yeah. more to say than the, your garden variety well, lecture or whatever. And I also think that like when you're talking to artists about music, which we also didn't talk about, on, <laughs> is, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear how they talk about it because it's like this thing that lots of these, and your friends are super, like your, lots of the artists you know are super duper into music. Yeah. I'm probably like an outlier of the group. It's like, I'm <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I played violin for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but hearing them talk about it is really interesting because the, there's a level of kind of fun and playfulness and experimentation and curiosity that they carry to, into that world yeah. that you can tell informed the way that they thought about art before it became their job. Right. There's <laughs> a know? freedom in it. And now, so you yeah. can actually see a lot about their studio practice and the way their, the mechanics of their mind works and their curiosity works through this other lens that they might act, if you ask some point blank, it like, but you point blank about what you're doing in the studio. You're like, oh, I'm working with these things. I'm working with these ideas. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in, you know, figuring out how these parts can fit together and what they mean when, when they do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and we're very kind of shop talky and sort of like less poetic, I think, right. than the artwork tends to be when it comes out. But I think that the way we talk, tend to talk about it is more like, what we how we feel like we should talk about it or what we feel like people are going to find interesting about it or how we can defend it yeah and when you're talking about music you know or even baseball when you talk about stadium design and you know or the day that i actually was out there watching them uh take down shea stadium Mm -hmm. like piece by piece i sat there i rode my bike out and i watched like this half a stadium was gone yeah um you know, those kinds of moments, I think, tell you so much more about the work, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea that this is part of the texture of somebody's life and, you know, these moments of curiosity and how they think. Yeah, like our relationship with the world, yeah. which is really what making artwork is about. It's kind of like this communication yeah. that is, it's a coded language, it's a kind of, it's got its own set of all this stuff, but then when you talk outside of that, you can get away from that. Mm-hmm. And you just talk about normal things and right. the way you, but your relationship like, to things, you know. Yeah, it's like problem solving. You know, artwork's kind of like also defining your relation. You know, it's like, at least in my practice, it's like little experiments about defining my relationship to the world. Yeah. You know, so it's like, why do I feel this way or look at right. things this way? Why am I interested in this? And trying to f- suss those things out through the kind of language and practice of the studio. And I think that you can, by t- talking about other things, I think that you can also, you get a almost better picture of that practice. Yeah. We got to be careful though, because that's getting really close to talking about the work. I know. So we, we have to stop now. <laughs> we get, you could even, you can just edit out the whole last part. Just trim it all out. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll do a part two sometime. Sure. Yeah. This is fun. We'll talk about music and other things. Yeah. We can talk about anything. We can even know. talk about artwork if we really wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. totally how I feel. <laughs> I was actually, um, one last note about that. This isn't the first time that, you know, I know that you experience this too all the time. You know, when we all talk to each other, 
like close friends who've been working in the art world for a long time, mm-hmm. I rarely talk about artwork with people. It's usually oh, yeah, it's yeah. usually like everything else I think is cool. Or, yeah. You know, because everybody's just like hungry for right. stuff that's not about art. Yeah, we're not just <laughs> sitting around talking about yeah, I adding, think it's, adding stuff to a painting or not. Well, once in well, a while, but <laughs> just when you get like to ship to Abu Dhabi in about five minutes. All right, thanks, Brian. Thank you. That was great.